0: Have you ever uh, considered that life is kind of like a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle? I mean, you got random pieces everywhere and um, you're trying to figure out how it all fits together. What's the point and what's the purpose? And, you know, like when you're working on a jigsaw puzzle, you can start to put a few sections together and you actually make a little bit of progress. It's kind of like life. You know, some of it all kind of connects and makes sense, but you've got a lot of just random pieces. You're not even sure where it all kind of fits together. And when it comes to life. Most people think that uh, life is really about them. And so because life is about me, all the pieces somehow have to come together where I am the center of the universe and certainly the center of attention. And, we're, and you're trying to make it work that way. And, and the problem was is that that's actually not the intent of the puzzle and certainly not the puzzle of life. You see, the puzzle of life really... If you're going to understand what is it all about and what's the point and what it's supposed to look like, you've got to go to the creator of the puzzle, right? If you've got a major thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, let me uh, tell you, if you want success, go to the person that actually created the puzzle, and you're going to see what it's meant to what's intended to, when when all the pieces come together. And the same is true about life. Life isn't about you. Life is about the creator. It's about God. And God gives us his word, he gives us creation, he gives us this universe. All of this to point us to him because the purpose of life is that you and I become worshipers of him. And that's what the puzzle of life, you want to understand how it all comes together. It comes together when people become worshipers of him. Now, how does God develop worshipful lives among his people? I mean, how does that happen? That's why I'm so glad that you're here this morning, because in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses 11 through 15, this passage answers that one of the most essential questions of life. How do people become worshipers of God? Let me just show you the destination, King Solomon, third king of Israel. Let me show you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit where he's going to land And then we're going to walk through this passage. I want you to kind of jump down toward the end there of that passage. In chapter 3, verse 14, Solomon writes, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. And this is what I want you to see. For God has so worked that men should fear him. God's work that you're going to see presented in this passage is so that you and I, people, would fear Him. Now, when the Bible talks about the fear of God, and that's used over like a hundred times in the Old Testament, it's not talking about like a cowering, I'm paralyzed kind of fear. It's mostly used of a, to serve God, to worship God, and to find a life that honors Him. You believe in Him. You trust in Him. You hold Him in awe. Hence, when He speaks, you want to follow because you are a worshiper of Him. And so He says, The whole working of God that he's going to to be explaining in this passage is so that you and I would fear him. One of the greatest works of God is to create worshipful lives. And this passage tells us how he does it. That is why it's such an awesome passage. Now, when you're working on jigsaw puzzles, how many of you actually try to find the four corners? Is anybody using that strategy? Okay, my grandmother taught me that. That's the strategy I use. Like, okay, this is a huge mess. I need to find the four corners. They're the most evident pieces, and you find those, and you're like, okay, at least I know I've got the four corners, and you start building from there. This text, these five verses, they actually give us the four corners that kind of just show us how God is at work to bring worshipers of him. And so let's just take a look at these corner pieces. The work of God that develops worshipful lives. Let's look at the very first one. In verse 11, chapter 3, this is kind of a review. We spent some time last week actually covering this verse. But just by way of review, I want you to see these first two corner pieces. The first one you find right there at the very beginning. God makes everything appropriate in its time. See what he says there in verse 11? Maybe your Bible translates it this way. He has made everything beautiful in its time. It's the idea that God makes and it takes everything and it works for good. It's appropriate and it is even beautiful. Now, I mean let that sink in. Everything God creates and has an appointed time and it's it's beautiful in its time. That tells us that life isn't empty, random and godless, but it's actually full of precision and it's aligned with what God is intending. And even the life's most difficult circumstances, pain, problems, mystery, even misery, somehow in God's economy, just like this text says, he has made everything appropriate in its time. When you and I see this first corner piece of understanding that God works all things together and it's beautiful, it's appropriate in his time, what it does is it creates lives of worship. There's a pastor by the name of Tommy Nelson. He's up north here at Denton Bible Church. And he wrote a book called The Problem with Life with God. And one time in his worship service that they were, he was leading, uh, he was preaching. He had his pianist come to the piano. And he asked her to play Jesus Loves Me, but just using just all the white keys. Now, if you know anything about music, if you are in the key of C, you can make that happen. But if you're in any other key, it doesn't sound quite right. That's how she played it. And then he says, listen, I've had you play it with just using all the white keys, but now I want you to use the white and the black keys. And I want you to play Jesus loves me using all of the keys. Why, it was far more beautiful, because it's more complex. You're adding all the notes. And he uses that as kind of an imagery. We would like life to be just all the white keys. Just just nothing difficult, nothing black, nothing hard. But God uses the white keys and the black keys. And it makes beautiful music. And learning to see how God is at work, how everything is being made beautiful in its time, even if we don't make uh, understand it, even if it's painful, we're taking it by faith. What it creates in our lives is worship. It's the first corner piece. Let me give you the second that's also found in verse 11. Not only does God make everything appropriate in its time, but God sets eternity in our hearts and limits our understanding. You see that in verse 11? He has made everything appropriate in its time, and he has also set eternity in their heart. Now, every person understands there's more to life than what you see. You understand that, that there's something more than just you. Now, you can try to suppress the knowledge, you can call yourself an atheist and say, ah, no, there's no God. There's no eternity. There's nothing after this life. But according to Romans 1, you are suppressing truth. Maybe you actually know what that's like. You you try to hold it down, even though it's so very evident to you that life is far more than just you. And actually, everybody has kind of a compulsive drive to understand, to know meaning, have purpose, have identity, to connect with God. Randy Elcorn wrote a book called Heaven. And in this book he makes the case that every civilization in human history has this yearning for the eternal. So let me just give you some examples. Like the Australian Aborigines, they pictured heaven as a distant island in the western horizon. The early Finns, they actually pictured eternity uh, and heaven as a distant island in the eastern horizon. So okay, we got two different things going on here. The Mexicans, the Peruvians, and the Polynesians... They believe that when you died, you went to the sun or to the moon. Native Americans believe that when you died, you your spirit went to hunt these spirit buffalo. And that's kind of what happened in eternity. There is the Gilgamesh epic, which is kind of the ancient Babylonian uh, legend of what happens to people when they die. And it refers to a resting place for heroes. And it even gives hints of a tree of life in their story. In the pyramids of Egypt, when they go and they get these, uh, they go and they I find these tombs and the pyramids, and they find these bodies that have been bombed and their sarcophagus, they find next to them maps. And you know what those maps are for? They are to guide that individual in the afterlife. And it was, in fact, all the collection of all their stuff and their toys and, and their uh, collections of weapons and, and all their gifts, all of this was meant To bring a focus to the afterlife. Because they they believed that what was to come was actually even more important than what they just had. And then the Romans, they believed that the righteous would picnic at the Elysian fields. And at their picnic, their horses would be kind of grazing nearby. And that was their picture of eternity. In fact, Roman philosopher Seneca said this. "The The day thou fearest as the last is the birthday of eternity. Now obviously... All these different civilizations and different cultures had different conclusions of what eternity might be like. But one thing that is unifying is that they all believed that there is life after death. They all underscored this principle in, from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God has placed eternity in their hearts. And you and I see it. There's a quest to want to know to understand character and composition and the meaning of the world. We want to see beauty in creation. We want to know why we're here. We want to understand destiny. We understand, want to understand purpose. You know why? Because God has set eternity in our hearts. But I don't want you to miss the end of verse 11. Not only has God set eternity in our heart, but do you see what he says? Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning, even to the end. God has placed limitations on human understanding. You see, the desire to understand life, where does that come from? It comes from God. He sets eternity in our hearts. But do you know, the very same God also places limitations on our ability to understand all things. I mean, think of it. In all of our, like, science and technology and all of our knowledge, and a lot of it is just amazing what we know. What we don't know is even far more. Significant. There's just so much that we just don't understand. And you need to understand that that is by divine design. There are challenges and difficulties in our life that simply can't be explained. And really, at times, we have to just realize we are fallen people living in a fallen world. And we have got to leave it with God. And that's what this text says. Not only have I placed eternity in your hearts, but I place limits your understanding and yet that's hard for us right we wrestle with why was i born this way and why did this person why did they die and why why this difficulty and why this challenge and god doesn't oftentimes answer our questions you do know from this text that he makes everything beautiful in its time that means your loss your hospital experience your romance that failed uh, your broken marriage, your, the battles that you've gone through, your fragmented dreams, even your terminal illness. Somehow, God works everything and makes it appropriate in its time. He set a yearning in your heart for eternity, but he's also lim- put limits as to what you're going to understand in this life. And I want you to know that as beautiful of a verse this is in verse 11, chapter 3, it is also extremely challenging. There are things that you and I simply cannot understand, how, how this could possibly work. For instance, the Holocaust, 9-11, what ISIS does to Christians and these beheadings. Uh, just this week I was reading about Christians and how they're tortured in North Korea in these prison camps, written by a guy who actually escaped from one, which is extremely rare. The genocides, whether they be in Bosnia or Rwanda, we can't understand all this. We do know that God's fingerprints cover everything. And even in the place of misery, perhaps even most of all, we understand, though I don't understand it, I do know that he's there. And what this corner of peace is meant to do, friends, is to bring and evoke worship from our lives it's kind of like that tapestry. Remember we've talked about it before you got a tapestry on one side, like you see that backside there? It's just knots and strings and it's a mess. And it makes no sense. But when it's flipped over, you see like, wow, there's complete order and design and creation. In fact, it's beautiful. This text tells us that is the case in this life. Maybe it seems like you're looking at knots and strings, but I want you to know that at one point and at some point in your life you will see the beauty of what God is doing and has done. You know, Ecclesiastes 3.11 is really kind of the Old Testament counterpart to Romans 8.28. Remember that? For God works, remember what he says? He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God does, he works all things together for good. What is that good? Remember Romans 8:29. always take things in context. The good is that you and I are conformed to the image of Jesus. The challenges and the difficulties in life are meant to, meant to bring us more like Christ. And what this means is that you and I have to learn in the midst of our pain to ask questions like, God, what do I learn about you or about myself? How are you using these events to bring glory to yourself? Help me to see them from your perspective. And there's there's problems in life, right? It's kind of like those puzzle pieces that you just don't know what to do with, right? They're just like, I don't see how this fits. You know what we need to do? To trust God to be God. If you and I do not learn how to trust God, what happens? One of two things. One, you're either going to formulate a God of your own imagination. It will have no basis of fact. Or... You will believe in the one true God, the God revealed Himself in Scripture, but you are going to have kind of this constant state of agitation because God did not answer your questions or He's done things that don't make sense to you and you're mad about it and you want Him to know about it and you live like that. It's kind of like this you got two choices frustration because of your inability to understand or faith, faith in God's goodness and His sovereignty. And when you exercise faith that God is good and he's sovereign, even though I don't understand it all, you know what that leads to in our lives? Worship. That's what God is doing. He's going about a work to bring worship in our lives. You probably missed this. uh, In 2008, there was a discovery. And if you're in the music world, you are aware that they found a piece of music written by Mozart. And it's just a small piece. The. A lot of it is missing. They still can't find it. In in a library in France, someone discovered a piece of music written by Mozart that no one knew he had ever written. They believe it was written about 1787 uh, at the end of his life. And it's a piece of music written for a, for a church. It's, uh, it's worship music. And it's helped people understand just how important relationship with Christ was to Mozart. And they find this piece of music... And so there's this guy, Dr. Ehrlich Lessinger, at the International Mozart, Mozartium Foundation in Salzburg, Austria. He says, you know, even though most of it's missing, we can get a sense of what the tune was by what we have. And here, in fact, this is what it is. It's handwritten. That's his handwriting. Uh, that's the music that he wrote there. And he, Dr. Lessinger said this, quote, Even though there is not much that, not that much music on that paper as one would like in order to perform it, It still gives us important clues about its intentions. We have enough from what we do have to know the intentions of the artist. Now, there's a lot more that could be had, and maybe we'll discover it in some other library laying around in France. I don't know. But we have enough to know the intention of Mozart. And friends, that's a lot like life. God has given some things, and he's made it clear. He's revealed it to us. It's right here in his word, or perhaps it just makes a lot of sense in our life. But there's a lot of life that it's it's just like, I don't get it. What you and I need to do is trust it. And when we do, you know what happens? It leads to worship in our lives. Through his work, through his creation, through his word, we learn we have just enough to give God glory, and that's what he wants. And one of the reasons that God gives eternal life to people is so that we will indeed see Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything appropriate in its time. What kind of life does God give? John 3.16. He gives eternal life. Unending, but it also speaks the type of life. It is life with God. It's abundant and it's full. And one of the reasons he gives us eternal life is so that we will see. Even the mystery pieces that we didn't get. That we had set aside. All things work together for good. He's made everything appropriate. In its time. And friends, that leads to worship in our lives. Let me give you the third corner piece. It's found in verses 12 and 13. And we see that God also gives purpose and joy to our lives. Get this. I mean, some people, maybe they've just completely missed this in Scripture, but God wants us to know purpose and joy in our lives. Look what he says, verse 12 and 13. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Did you see that? God gives purpose and joy. I mean, we live in a wicked world. There's all sorts of problems. We've got pain, misery. Everybody's got some situation in their life that is eating their lunch. And yet God says, I want you to find joy. I want you to understand there is nothing better, verse 12, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Remember what we saw last week in, in verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3? There's like good things and there are terrible things. In the midst of that, God says, I want you to have my joy. Rejoice. You can do it because you know me. In fact, remember he said in chapter 2, verse 25, who can eat? And who can have enjoyment without him. It is impossible to have joy in life apart from God. That's why God has given us himself. Why? Because he wants us to experience joy. When you enter into a relationship with God, it is a call to joy in life. Yeah, there's some things that are difficult. This isn't a don't worry, be happy kind of mindset. This isn't kind of pagan hedonism, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of mentality. This is the mindset that God has given good gifts. He's given himself, and I will be grateful, and I will experience joy in these things. There's a guy by the name of William Sankster. He was a famous British Methodist evangelist and a pastor. He discovered in life and was told by doctors that he had progressive muscular atrophy. There was nothing that could be done to make him well. And so what this guy did, William Sangster, he actually wrote four resolutions that he sought to live for the rest of his life. They're pretty powerful. Listen to them. One, I will never complain. Wow. Two, I will keep the home bright. Three, I will count my blessings. Let me assure you, that can be a game changer for you. And four, I will try to turn it to gain. What I'm going through, I'm going to try to turn it to gain. You see verses of 12 and 13? That's what this is calling for. For us to experience God's joy even in the midst of our difficulties and the pain and the things that we don't understand. That that what this text is telling us is that we are to do good in one's lifetime. You see this in verse 12? This means that you proactively go out and engage and do good for others. So often we like. I'll do good for, to you if you first do good to me, okay? We got a little agreement. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But this text is saying, I want you to do good. In fact, God gives us the ability to do good. And when you are actively pursuing to do good for another, whether it's to extend an act of kindness, uh, help them with something, provide them with something, uh, no strength attached, when you seek to do good, do you know what happens? You experience joy. When you realize how good and gracious God's been to you, and you start extending that kind of goodness to others, you know what happens? You start experiencing the joy that this text is calling about. It brings about a life of worship. By the way, did you know that doing good is an outworking of the gospel? Like, for instance, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God, not as a result of works, that... No one should boast. God gives you gifts. He gives you faith even to believe. You and I become Christians not because we're good. Not because we go to church. Not because we've uh, held up some sort of moral code. We receive forgiveness and life with God by grace. And do you know why God brings us into relationship with himself by grace? So that Ephesians 2.10 will be a reality. What does that say? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God does good through his people because we're in relationship with himself. And what this text is calling us to is a perspective. He says, look at even verse 13. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. This is the perspective God wants us to have. Even your work is good. Now, I was curious. How many of you actually really just like, you love your job? Is, okay, I wow, that's great. Okay, a lot more than First Service. Uh, they have First Service has people that hate their jobs. I think I had three or four. I had one of these. I wasn't sure if they're going to sneeze or what, but... You know, it's very interesting. There's a reason why most of you did not put your hands up. Because actually, apparently, most Americans actually don't like their jobs. They are just enduring them. Um, it's interesting because uh, did you know that you're going to spend at least 40% of your life at work? The average uh, American worker works over 150,000 hours of their life. You know that? And most of them don't like their jobs. Now really you've got a a dilemma here you see god actually wants you to experience and see you see verse 13 good in all your labor it is the gift of god what are we going to do well you actually have two choices you could go get another job if you if that's where you're at there's nothing good about this i don't like it you can go try to find and get another job but before you do that have have you actually given your first job a real chance the job that you currently have meaning you either go get another job or you ask God to give you a different perspective on the job that you already have most people say oh, I don't like my job and I got the list of reasons right however I want you to consider has God been good to you in your job for instance has he provided something for you in your job Do you have opportunities to do good for others? Have you an opportunity to encourage others? Is there an opportunity for you to demonstrate how good and excellent our Savior is by how you go about your job? Do you ever have an opportunity to even talk to someone about Christ in your job? Do you have an opportunity to put the love of God on display in your job? Maybe there is a lot more good to your job than you've ever really given God credit for. And so Really, you either do what you love or you ask God to give you a love for what you do. But I don't want you to miss this. God gives us joy and purpose. He wants us to see good. I mean, you've got to look for it. You're going to have to open up your eyes. And he wants you to do good. Because by doing good, seeing good, and seeing all of these many blessings as gifts from God, you know what this leads to? It leads to worship, and after all, that's what life is all about, to become a sincere worshiper of him. If you're really struggling with your job, let me give you a couple verses that were given to me when I was a brand new Christian at the University of Oregon. One of the gals in our Christian ministry uh, gave me these two verses, which I still don't actually know why she gave them to me, but she wrote these out. And it was really nice, so obviously it was meant to be made a point. And I actually kind of hung it up by my desk. And it was Colossians 3, 23 and 24. It simply says this. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Maybe the problem is you have the wrong idea of who's your boss. You see, when it's the Lord Christ you're serving, all of a sudden you're saying, wow, there's a lot of good here. And I have an opportunity to represent you. Some of you, you are the only Christian in your workplace. Aren't you even taken aback that God has entrusted such a responsibility to you? He's good to you. And one of the ways that you will find to see good is to express gratitude. People that don't see a lot of good in most of their life and especially their jobs, generally aren't very grateful and don't have a lot of gratitude try it ask God what can I be thankful for you might be overwhelmed you might be overwhelmed how he changes your heart about your job this text tells us listen God gives us purpose and joy to our lives why it's the work of God to create us to create in us the fear of God to become worshipers of him I want to tell you this refuse to let what you can't control destroy what you can enjoy refuse to let what you can't control destroy what you can enjoy the biblical faith is a call to joy and let me give you the fourth corner piece it's found in the remaining two verses verses 14 and 15 we're seeing all these corner pieces they're they're key in fact by identifying them believing them and living them what it does is it creates worshipful lives let me give you the fourth corner piece it might even be like the cornerstone it's found in verses 14 and 15. God establishes his sovereignty over all. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. You see that? He's worked so wise so that people will revere him, honor him, be in awe of him. And he says in verse 15 that uh, which is... Is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what is passed by. You see, what this text does is it tells us about the sovereignty of God. You and I want to affirm what the Bible affirms, and that He is sovereign over all things. What that means is that God is in control. It means that God has the absolute right to govern all things as He chooses, without any limitations by circumstances or human choices. That he is God, the God of universe, that he is complete and that he has complete dominion over all things. And, you know, God is not necessarily always pleased, but he is never perplexed. And look at this text here. He tells us like, how in the world we can believe in the sovereign God. Who is this God? First of all, look at the quality of his work. Look at verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. Do you see that? God's work is permanent. It's not superficial. It's not like he kind of just put on like this thin layer of veneer. His work is permanent and substantial. It doesn't go away. And second of all, notice that it's thorough and complete. You see that verse 14? There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. His work can't be added to it. It's It's not too little. It's not too late. It is just right. It is thorough and complete. And what does it lead to? I I don't want you to miss it. I've, I've underlined this in my Bible because this is the work that God is seeking to create. He is so worked so that we will revere him. Hold him in awe. Honor him, serve him, worship him. You ever had that experience where you saw like one of the natural wonders and it literally just like took your breath away? I remember the first time driving to Oregon and seeing Mount Hood came around this bend and I'm driving the car and like all of a sudden you see this gigantic mountain just just jetting up to the heavens and like, I mean, you just like, whoa, what is that? Massive. Or maybe you've had the experience of seeing like Mount Everest or to go to Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon, and it literally like takes your breath away, like, whoa, what's that? I want you to know that that's what God is doing. He wants us to see Him clearly, not only in creation, but as He's revealed Himself in the Word and His work in your life, and it's meant to bring us to a place of awe where we're actually just in awe on Him. We hold Him in reverence because, after all, verse 14. This is the work that he's seeking to accomplish that we would fear him. God's sovereignty is not meant to trouble us. It's meant to comfort us. You know, if we were to leave church today and someone would tell me, listen, someone real close to you has died suddenly and unexpected, I want you to know I'd be heartbroken over that. And I'm, knowing me, I'd I'd probably ask God, like, why? What what happened here? Why why was this? You know what? God probably wouldn't answer that question. Not this side of eternity. Now, there's difficult things in my life, just like there are in your life. I can work with a God who is good and sovereign. And I understand I'm very limited in my understanding. And there's a lot of things that I don't know. I've got all sorts of limitations. As long as I know that God is good and he's sovereign... I can work with that. But if I think this universe is run by evil and that God's not in control and things are just spiraling out of control. I can't function. I feel like I need to go to a cave and stay in it for the rest of my weary existence. You see, when we come to an understanding of God as he is, like the text is explaining, what it does is it gives us hope to hang on. It gives us the ability to worship because God is sovereign and he is good. I'm not into heights, so I would never do this. But some of you actually think like what you see on the screen here, like repelling off a cliff. Sounds like a wonderful idea. And you're like, oh, that'd be great. There's guys and gals in our church that this this is their idea of spring break. Not for me. But if you were there and you're going to do that, you wouldn't just buy some bystander wearing some sort of goofy hat that they got from Disneyland. Like, hey, just. But you just hold on to this rope. I just want to jump off the cliff here. You know, hang on, I don't need it secure. No, you would, make, you would make sure that whoever was holding on to that rope knew what they were doing, to keep that rope secure, and keep you safe, right? In life, what we're doing is we're trusting, we're, we're coming off that rope, and we're hanging on for dear life. We're jumping off that cliff, and we're hanging on. And you know what we're hanging on to? We're hanging on to God. And by hanging on to God, even when it doesn't make sense and it seems like we're in a free fall and it's painful and it's problematic and there is much more mystery than there is certainty in my life to know that God has got this and he's got me. That's all that I need. And what this produces is worship in our life. And you notice in verse 15, you might go, that's a strange verse. You see, it says that which has already been has been already and that which will be has already been for God seeks what has passed by. What this literally says is that God calls back. He seeks out. This text tells us that even though you and I, we go through time and we forget most of it, not God, he sees it all. He calls it back. It's almost kind of like a precursor that God is going to be the one who will bring judgment for what we did in time. But I want you to know that even though there's a lot of missing pieces and we don't get it, God sees it all. He calls it back, like it says in verse 15. And all things are going to be seen to work together for his good and for his glory. Ben Franklin once said, do you love life? Then do not squander time for it is the stuff life is made of. So what do you do when you're working on a jigsaw puzzle and you got a piece that just doesn't fit? What do you guys do? Nothing. Okay, well, I'll tell you what I do. I, I, uh, I put it aside. I got it there, and I'm looking for where it's going to fit. Right now, I don't have enough to together. But I know eventually that missing piece has got its place. And friends, in the difficulties in your life, you've got some pieces on the side. I want you to know God's going to fit it all things together and put it together because he can, because he's good, because he's sovereign, because he is God. And so life is like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? But he's putting it all together. And the purpose of our life is this, to become a sincere worshiper of God. There's a guy by the name of Christopher Parkening. He's considered the world's greatest classical guitarist. Uh, I've seen him on several occasions. It's, uh, it's absolutely phenomenal what this guy can do with a classical guitar. And um, he is... Highly respected, he's made all sorts of money, but by the time he was at age 30, uh, he was just struggling with life was absolutely meaningless. Though he was the greatest uh, classical guitarist of all time, he actually stopped performing altogether. He went to Montana, bought himself a nice ranch. Uh, he is uh, considered a world-classified fishing expert. Um, he's a champion in that field, and he's like the world's greatest classical guitarist. And yet, life, he found, was completely meaningless. He thought that just by walking away from the guitar altogether, that somehow things would all kind of fall into place. Walk away for a little while, recover. What he found, is life became increasingly more empty. And he wrote this. If you arrive at a point in your life where you have everything that you've ever wanted and thought that it would make you happy and it still doesn't, then you start questioning things. It's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I thought, I had that. And I thought, well, what's left? So one time when he was visiting friends in California, his friends were Christians. They were believers in Christ. They actually invited him to go to church. Now, he wasn't a church-going guy or anything, but he decides to go. And when he goes, he hears about Christ and the gospel. And about not only forgiveness of sins, but about life with God, life Meant to be a worshiper of him. And he actually places his faith in Christ. And as he starts growing as a Christian. You see this so often with growing Christians. They start developing a hunger for the Bible. To know the word of God. And he came across 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. That changes everything for him. This verse simply says whatever you do. Do it all. Do your all for the glory of God. And so what he did is he re-engaged playing the guitar again. But now he had a whole different perspective. Now he started living his life for the glory of God, that life becomes worship. And he writes this, quote, I realized there were only two things I knew how to do, fly fish for trout and play the guitar. Well, I'm playing the guitar today absolutely by the grace of God. I have a joy, a peace, and a deep down fulfillment in my life I never had before. My life has purpose. And I've learned firsthand the true secret of genuine happiness. What is it? Friends, it's this text. You see, the purpose of life is to become a sincere worshiper of God. And this passage, you know why it's so precious? It gives us the four corner pieces. Of how that happens, it is the work of God in our lives. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. For someone who has come here today, and they're like Christopher Parkening, maybe they have it all, and maybe they have nothing, but they realize they need You. They need life, and they need forgiveness. Would they simply pray with me and say, "Lord, I turn from self and my sin, and this morning I am trusting in Your Son for life." And for forgiveness. That I will be an eternal worshiper of you. And Lord for all of us. Lord you want a deep seated God centered perspective. You want us to know your goodness. You've spelled it out in your word. Would you continue to create the reality. That we worship you with sincerity of heart. All the days of our life. For this will be our joyous occupation. For eternity. For your glory. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.